the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Well, as always, uh, we want you to know how welcome you are and how thankful we are that you're here, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person this morning. Um, we're thankful that you braved the weather this time and all that. But this is a special day, not just because it's the fourth day in a series where we're looking at the life of Jesus and how to live the kind of love life that he taught us and commanded us to live, showed us how to live. But this is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we remember the beginning of Passion Week, the most important week there's ever been in all of history. This is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, coming in with all of the other Passover lambs. He rode into Jerusalem and declared himself without any more doubt. There was nothing but resolve from this day forward. That this was the Messiah, this was the Passover lamb. He was throwing down a gauntlet, this was it. We don't celebrate this because it was such a great parade. I don't know there's ever been a parade that's been that great, honestly. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it's a bunch of people walking by and a bunch of people watching, right? I mean, some parades are fun. But, but have you ever seen a parade that was so great that instead of having another parade next year and going, hey, wow, that was, that was great, let's do that again next year, we go, that was so great, let's celebrate how great that parade was from now on. That doesn't happen. The reason that we celebrate Palm Sunday is not because the Palm Sunday parade was so fun, but because of what it represented. This was Jesus, again, laying down the gauntlet. And from this moment on, everything, every moment was leading up to the cross. But the truth is, everything had already been leading up to the cross already. Would you say that out out loud with me? Everything was leading up to the cross. All the way back in creation, all the way back before creation, Jesus was, John tells us, the Word of God. The Word was with God. He was with God. All things were created by Him. Without Him, nothing was made. There was a purpose about the Jesus part of the Godhead all the way even before they started creating. And ever since then, through the flood and every other thing that happened, you could see it. John, uh, in his uh, epistle, first epistle, he writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. But all throughout creation, uh, all throughout creation and everything after that, you see this plan unfolding. And as soon as the fall happened, the Messiah starts to be promised. And all the way through every covenant that God made, every law, all the prophets, everything is pointing to the Messiah, to a Passover lamb. They don't understand all of the imagery at every point. In fact, they probably didn't understand much of it at all at every point. But it's all in there as we look back. One of the clearest moments is when Abraham was tested by God and asked to try and sacrifice his son Isaac. Now we're told that this was on Mount Moriah or in the hills of Moriah. I don't know if you know this or not but Moriah is just another name for all the hills around Jerusalem. It was another era. It was many hundreds of years before Jesus was there. But some scholars believe that there's at least a really good chance that he had this moment with God on the very hill just outside of Jerusalem that we know as Calvary or Golgotha. 
Whether that's true or not, it was the same idea. And whether that's true or not, here's what we know for sure. Absolutely, this was foreshadowing what God was going to do through Jesus. You see a father being willing to sacrifice his own son. And you see God stepping in with a substitution lamb. You see both of those things happening at once in this amazing moment. But all throughout history, all the story of Israel and everything. In fact, you see Jesus say this himself. Who was here last week and heard, heard the Sermon on the Mount verbatim? Wasn't that powerful? Love that. But at the beginning of that, Jesus said, For I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He was here to all of it had been pointing up to him. When John the Baptist first introduced everybody to Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The Messiah, the Lamb, it was, it was all there side by side, those images all the way through. But let's talk about the idea first that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Would you say that out loud too? I just want you to remember that. When I make you say it out loud, I just, I want it to stick so badly. I want you to get this. So would you say it out loud with me? Jesus is the Passover lamb. From this point on, there was nothing but the resolve to be the Passover lamb. But again, this has been building for a really long time. The Pharisees had hated Jesus from day one because he clashed with their worldview. You can hardly blame them. It had been centuries since God's last written down prophet message, the prophet Micah's message. It had been a long time and they, they were really in an entrenched habit of just relating to God only through trying to follow his rules. But man, God forbid we ever get that way. Because when God himself showed up and they heard the voice that Moses had heard in the bush and on the mountain. When they heard the voice that all the other heroes throughout the Old Testament had heard. Coming out of the mouth of Jesus. They thought he was blaspheming. When they looked God in the eye, they, they wanted to kill him. And they thought they were doing the right thing. They, they were so far off track that putting Jesus into the mix just revealed that more than anything. I went to school in Johnson University with a guy named Steve Cuss. He was a friend of mine. I found out just this week that he's actually kind of a big deal these days. Um, he wrote a book a little while ago for leaders uh, about anxiety and how to handle the specific kinds of anxiety that leaders handle trying to guide people through um, really crisis, big crisis situations and help a big group of people through those kind of crisis situations. And apparently, I don't know, somehow 2020 was a good year to have a book like that. But honestly, he has some brilliant things to say. Here's one of them. He says that crisis does not create, it reveals and exposes. Crisis does not create, it reveals and exposes. Here's what he means. If you see a church or a family, a marriage, a friendship, whatever kind of relationship, a job, job force, whatever it is. If you see a group of people and crisis hits them and they survive. It's not because the crisis made them stronger. The crisis just revealed what was already in there. And the crisis became a catalyst for them to get stronger. And if you see a church or a, or a business or a marriage or a friendship or whatever and crisis hits them and it just all falls apart, 
It's not the fault of the crisis. The crisis just reveals what was already there in the first place. Does that make sense? And so Jesus being thrown into this mix, into this volatile situation with the Rome and the Jews and the Pharisees and all of this stuff, it it just reveals. Everywhere he goes, he just reveals what's really on everybody's hearts. Jesus is like a walking around crisis. I know that sounds weird, but everywhere he went, he caused problems. He caused things going on. It, It just happened all the time. Now, we're going to get to Palm Sunday. I promise we're going to get to the story of the parade. We're going to get there. But I want to start today with the week before that. Because that's where Jesus really started cranking things up. That's where he started packing the gunpowder really tight. And getting the fuse ready. And making sure he had enough matches. He was ready to go. John 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, quick note about Hebrew storytelling and also the way I'm telling this story this morning. We're we're kind of jumping around chronologically and that's okay. We're talking about the deep meanings more than anything. Him referring to Mary anointing Jesus, that actually happens in chapter 12. We're about to get there and it's really important. He's not referring to something that's already happened. He's talking to people who already know the whole story and he's just clarifying it. And he's going, it's that Mary. It's that Mary. Okay? Just to be clear. But Jesus, several of the things that happened in the last two weeks of his life had already happened at some point. And there's a reason he did it several times. For example, one of the first things he did when he started his ministry was to make a whip, to take some time to braid a whip and then wade in and clear out the temple. Palm Sunday, the day he got off of the donkey, the minute he got off the donkey, he did that again. He did it twice. And there was reason he did it at both ends of his ministry. He'd also risen people from the dead before, but it wasn't as big of a deal to everybody as it was to Lazarus for several reasons. He'd risen a woman's son, a widow's son. And he had just kind of walked up to the parade of, that. it wasn't really a casket, but what would be a casket for us, touches it, and the guy comes back to life. And they're going, help, maybe he was just mostly dead. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And then he goes to a funeral for Jairus' daughter. And behind closed doors, he brings her back to life. And there's a lot of mourners there and and all that. But again, there's, you know, if you told me you rose from somebody from the dead, I don't think I'd believe you. it, It didn't change the world yet. But this instance is a little different. In fact, Mark 5, verse 43, Jesus, it says... He, Jesus, gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. He told them to give her something to eat. Bottom line, sorry I got distracted there. But what he's saying is he, he was trying to keep it on the down low. But with Lazarus, I want you to picture what's going on. This was the week before the Passover. There are literally hundreds of thousands of Jews coming from all over the known world. 
to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. There's people everywhere, all over Moriah, all over through Bethany and the other surrounding towns around Jerusalem. They're everywhere. People are everywhere. And they hear about this guy who's a friend of Jesus, who's a pretty famous dude. And they hear that he's died and Jesus just let him die, but he's on his way. It tells us right there in John 11, there's a huge crowd is gathered to see what's going to happen. And this guy is not mostly dead. This guy is dead, dead. Okay? This guy, there's no doubt. It's been days. He's, his body's starting to decompose. But you know that, how many know this story? You know what happens, right? Jesus walks up and calls him out of the grave in front of everybody. And this is a huge, massive moment. I think that that's one of the clues that helps me at least wrestle with this story. Because I don't know about you, but this story has always bothered me as well as inspired me. It bothers me and it scares me because here's Jesus and it's clear that he loves this guy. He, even when he knows, minutes away from, he knows he's going to resurrect him, he's still crying at the guy's grave. This is somebody he really cares about and yet he lets him die. And he says this, when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. If you just stop the story at the, at the end of the story, it's already pretty cool. He raises a guy back to life. That brings him glory. But you got to see it in context. This was one more domino that had to fall before the cross. This was one more thing that was leading up to him declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Passover lamb. Pharisees didn't like it. They said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. The last verse of that chapter says, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So after he raises Lazarus back from the dead, he kind of lays low for a little bit. They're actually hiding out for a little bit. Nobody knows where he is except his closest friends. That's the situation as we turn the page and look at John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Little, another callback. Remember Martha and Mary? Same house. Same little house in Bethany where this had happened before. Martha's doing all the serving. Mary's doing something else. Okay? But in this instance, Mary cranks her sitting at the feet of Jesus thing up multiple notches. She anoints his feet. Now, this is a confusing thing for a lot of people. In fact, just to fact check myself, I went back and made sure I was getting this right. I talked to some people I trust. I looked at several different commentaries and stuff just to make sure. And you'd be surprised how many people really misunderstand these stories of people anointing Jesus. Some people even think it's like a conflict in the Bible, that it's one of the instances where that nobody can agree on the facts. But let me tell you, after a lot of research and prayer and every, I'm telling you, this is really not only clear, but beautiful. This happened three times. The first time somebody anointed Jesus, a woman anointed Jesus, that story is told in Luke chapter 7. And it was at a Pharisee's house, and it was at a little town called Nain. 
And here's what it says. A sinful woman came in and started, well, it just says it here. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And the only thing people are upset about is that this is a sinful woman touching Jesus in a Pharisee's house. Nobody's upset that she's wasting anything. She only uses a little bit of perfume. I'm giving you a lot of details here because this is a completely different story. This is not them messing up. In fact, there's just no way to confuse these if you're paying attention. This is one thing. This is Jesus early in his ministry making a claim that he's not just a prophet who should know if somebody sinful is touching him, but he's more than a prophet. He is the one who can make someone who is unclean clean just by touching them or letting them touch him. He's in another category altogether. He's not just someone who's aware of her sin. He's someone who has the authority to forgive it. And he's setting that up all the way at the beginning of his ministry. Fast forward to this night. A couple nights after Lazarus has come back to life. Six days before the Passover. This is Mary. It's in a private home. Her sister Martha's home in Bethany. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an extensive, expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's, it's told later in this, and you probably heard this story, that that much perfume was worth about a year's wages. Okay, that's a lot of money to anybody. Just out of context, this was a regular person's whole year of money that's how much that costs so people are mad because in the Torah one of their values that they always reminded each other about was don't be wasteful don't be too extravagant be careful save things it's kind of like if you see anybody starting to throw away a piece of paper these days and they go ah I recycled that which is a really good idea by the way all I'm saying is it's that kind of a thing back then but if you were wasting anything people are, hey, don't, don't don't waste that the Torah, right? So everybody's offended, especially Judas. But he's not offended enough. There's one more time Jesus gets anointed and we're about to get to there. But Jesus defends Mary. Again, second time he's defended her too. And he says, you know what? What she's done is beautiful to me. You're always going to have the poor with you. Of course I want you to take care of them. I've said that like a thousand times, you guys. I say it all the time. But I'm not always going to be here. And she gets that. She's doing something extravagant and special for me. And that's a beautiful thing. Jesus loves her extravagant love. But there's something even bigger going on here. This is six days before the Passover. You know what happens six days before the Passover? That's the day they inspect all the little lambs that are going to be potential Passover lambs. And part of that inspection process is they massage their feet with pure nard. I don't know for sure if that's what Mary had in mind here or not. But there is no way to miss the symbolism here. They also massaged them one more time, but this time it was their head. They put perfume on their head. That was two days before the Passover. Keep that in mind as we finish this story. But first, again, this was 
not lost on the disciples. Peter wrote this later. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. So all of this has happened. All of this is, it's all building up. And this is the context that Palm Sunday happened in. This is what's going on. Jesus and his disciples have an APB out for them. You know what I'm saying? They're, 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 everybody's watching for them. I don't know that there was a reward, but people are, if you see Jesus, you make sure you tell, they're, they're watching for him that way. And that's where Jesus shows up, riding on a donkey through the main gate of the city. Right in the middle of the parade of all the other Passover lambs. There's no doubt whatsoever that he's making this statement. I am the Messiah, the one who was told that he would be a king who came gentle, riding on a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden, coming into Jerusalem victoriously that way. And at the exact same time, he's saying, I am the ultimate Passover lamb. And also make no mistake about this. Jesus was picking a fight. He knew exactly where this was going to lead. He knew exactly where that crowd was going to go. He knew they were going to turn. He knew exactly what the Pharisees had been planning. He knew exactly this was, everything was leading up to the cross all along. But from this moment on, there was no going back. He had started the shot clock. He had hit the timer. It was going to happen. This is going to happen now. There was no going back. That's why we celebrate Palm Sunday is this, it, we are celebrating the resolve of Jesus to do what he had promised he would do. Do what he had planned to do. Do what had to be done so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved, so that we could be set free. He was saying, I am locking this in. And the people got it, at least temporarily, they got it. That's why they said things like Hosanna, which means two things all at once. We, can't, we don't have anything in English that says that. That's why we still say Hosanna when we sing it. Okay? There's nothing in English that says this, but it means two things. Save us, and you're the only one who can save us. It says both of those at the same time. That's what they're yelling to Jesus. They're also noticing that he is gentle in riding on a donkey, which is a clear quotation from the Old Testament telling us exactly what the Messiah would do. They get it. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was something that was about the Messiah. That was something that would be said of him. They know what he's telling them. Every single day of Passion Week, Jesus did something huge. As soon as he got off that donkey, he cleared the temple. Every day he came back and taught. Day after day, there were special things. But there's one more anointing I want to tell you about. This time I'm going to read it straight out of Mark 14. It's also in Matthew 26. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now you can see where people get confused, right? There's a woman, there's pure nard, there's somebody's eating. But this is a whole different house, whole different time, 
Everything's different here. This is a guy who's an ex-leper, or they wouldn't be at his house. Who do you think healed him? Okay, think about this for a second. Just like he's celebrating with Lazarus, who he brought back to life, he's celebrating with Simon, who he healed of leprosy. And in the same context, this is a woman who's not described as sinful. This is not a woman who is named and somebody we know well from the other stories. This is an anonymous woman, but this woman does something really special. Are you paying attention that it's two days before the Passover? She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and given the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. There's the Torah thing again. Don't be wasteful. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Again, this is why some people get confused. He's saying almost the exact same thing again. But it's three different things. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. As we celebrate Palm Sunday and start to celebrate each day of Passion Week this week, as we look forward to a really special service on Friday night where we're going to celebrate the cross and dig deep into the meanings of the cross itself. And Sunday morning, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of things to celebrate the resurrection. We've got an art show. We've got all these things that are happening, trying to remember this. I challenge you this whole week to remember the intentionality, the resolve of Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday was joyous. It was happy. It was fun. It was a neat parade. But that's not why we celebrate it. We celebrate it because he was throwing down the gauntlet. We celebrate it because this was the moment. You know, like in big sports events where there, there's been years of practice and so much planning and all kinds of other games and all kinds of things that have happened. But then there's this moment where they hold out a big piece of paper and all the team runs through. Or depending on what the venue is, there's a moment where all the, all the lasers start going off and somebody with a really echoey voice is going, and now, number 45. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? That's the moment where you go, okay, here it comes. This is it. This is actually the game. This is it. It's going to happen now. That's what's happening on Palm Sunday. Everything's been leading up to this moment, and now Jesus is going, are you ready? Here it comes. This whole week, would you join me? Would you join all of us as we remember everything that Jesus did? Because he loved us extravagantly. And that is exactly what he is calling us to do. Jesus was the Passover lamb. And as the Passover lamb, he didn't just get anointed and isn't he cute. He paid the ultimate price. He was slaughtered on our behalf. Jesus was the Messiah. But he didn't just ride into battle to do some really powerful things. He saved us by taking the punishment that was ours. By dying the death that was the wages of our sin. He loved us extravagantly. And then he told us to love each other the same way. To wash each other's feet the way he washed his disciples' feet. To serve, to speak truth. To meet real needs day after day as we love others the way we love God. 
with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. He defended and praised people when they loved extravagantly. He loved it. Sometimes we think of Jesus as being so humble and so so self-sacrificing that he might not even want to be worshipped or something like that. That's not true. He loves it when we are extravagant with our worship. He loves it when we are extravagant with our giving. He loves it when we are extravagant with how we celebrate what he did for us around the table. He loves it when we are extravagant when we dig deep into the scriptures together. He loves it when we are extravagant in how we pray to him. He loves it when we are extravagant in the way that we serve each other and the way that we collectively serve the community around us. The way we pour our hearts and our souls and everything in us into the Great Commission and accomplishing that on this earth. He loves it when we're extravagant. And he showed us what that looked like. He loved that parade, y'all. He loved it. Because he deserved it. And then he loved us extravagantly, not because we deserved it, but because he was resolved to love us extravagantly. Today, I'd like you to pray this simple prayer. Lord, I will love extravagantly. I will. I will love you extravagantly, God. I will love the people around me. If you're going to say that out loud, and I hope you do, I I hope you understand. You're saying this whole week, you're going to remember and you're going to worship Jesus, in whatever way means the absolute most to you. And you're going to serve and love others. You're going to care, notice the people around you and serve them in extravagant ways in honor of Jesus. I hope that you can resolve to do that this morning as we stand and as we sing.